Professor Dan Belknap will be our next presenter. Dan is a professor of ancient scripture. He received his PhD in Northwest Semitics from the University of Chicago. I consider him to be uh, one of the church's leading scholars on the use of ritual in ancient and contemporary contexts. And uh, Dan's presentation is entitled, Worship the Lord in the Beauty of Holiness. Professor Belknap. We can get this up. Oh, okay, here. Nice, all right. In recent years, there's been a growing understanding that ritual and ritual environments are more than platforms for symbolic understanding, but structures that have physiological effects as well. The physiological effects on the senses, whether consciously perceived or not, add to the overall religious experience. If this is the case, then the aesthetics or the recognition of these sensual effects is also important. With that in mind, I'd like to suggest that a visual aesthetic played a role in the Israelite cultic experience. More specifically, that a pleasing visual aesthetic, as demonstrated in the presentation of color and light and clothing, was deliberately and explicitly a part of the ritual experience and functioned to facilitate the interaction between the divine and mortal realms. Helmut Utschneider defines aesthetics simply as, as a philosophy of human perception. While he takes to include negative sensory perception as well as positive, Terence Groth refined this definition to one in which aesthetics is a philosophy of beauty and art, a definition that he used in his study concerning biblical theological aesthetics. While Gerald Klingbeil, in his study on biblical ritual, has suggested an Israelite aesthetic which focused on order. With these definitions in mind, I would define aesthetics as an appreciation or recognition of the worth of an object or individual via sensory experience that may be divided into pleasing and non-pleasing categories and meant to establish cosmic alignment with the divine. As others have noted, it does seem clear from the Hebrew Bible that ancient Israel had a refined sense of what was pleasing and what was not. The text provides ample evidence that there was a recognized sense of attractiveness. For instance, in 2 Samuel 14, 25, we're told that Absalom was a man of beauty above all others because he lacked blemishes from head to toe, a characteristic often noted in describing the beauty of individuals, both male and female. Though the material remains so far, the, the material remains so far uncovered do not appear to suggest that Israel ever had, quote, art for art's sake, the number of cosmetic toiletries does indicate a concern for looking good. Moreover, the stylized nature of their architecture further suggests that ancient Israelites sought to make their social spaces, both private and public, ones which were pleasing to both owner and visitor. While a general understanding of Israel's aesthetics is interesting in and of itself, in this paper I am more concerned with the pleasing aesthetic experience that appears to have been a crucial part to the overall ritual praxis of ancient Israel, or at least as the biblical writers wish this praxis to be understood. I say this because the ritual texts are, for the most part, prescriptive. And in this, they are idealistic, meaning they do not describe the complete physicality of the ritual experience. For instance, the description of the burnt offering described in Leviticus 1, 1 through 9, is as important for what it does not say as it does for what it does say about the procedure. Left out is the visceral, messy nature of animal sacrifice. 
As I've noted elsewhere, the scent of slaughter is missing, and the text is silent to the cacophony of noise that would have filled the air during the procedures. These absences do not mean that the writers avoided the sensuous nature of the cultic experience. Indeed, to the contrary, sensual descriptions abound, but they are notable for their pleasing aesthetic nature. For instance, the olfactory experience described in the ritual texts explicitly emphasized it as a pleasing one. The role of the incense and the riachni hoach, the pleasant scent, were fundamental elements of the cultic experience, of which in their implementation created an environment facilitating mortal divine interaction. As elsewhere, the pleasant sense represented the divine sphere and created an atmosphere or environment that made it possible for the interaction. Audibly, the explicit mention of singing and praising, along with the tinkling of the bells hanging from the hems of the priestly robes, are implied to have been a euphonious experience. In fact, coupled with the possible priestly silence suggested by Israel Noel or Cole, the, audience, the auditory experience would have been a unique contrast between the worshiper and the priests and would have emphasized the divine nature of the space overall. Determining the role of the visual aesthetic in the cultic experience is a bit more difficult to ascertain since explicit statements of what, one, of what one was to see or what one was expected to see when at the temple are not common in the biblical text. Instead, it appears that the visual experience was just simply assumed. For instance, though the description of the temple's dimensions as found in 1 Kings 6 and 7 are not contextualized as something explicitly seen, the only way in which one could grasp the significance of those dimensions was by sight, both the actual physical elements as well as the symbolic implications of the physical structures. The brazen sea that rested upon the backs of the 12 oxen meant the entire structure was between seven and nine feet deep, which when coupled with the oxen meant the entire structure stood at least 12 to 15 feet, 12, 10 to 12 feet high. Carts and other movable stands supposedly used for preparation stood at least six feet high. Similarly, the altar was massive, measuring approximately 30 feet by 20 feet and 15 feet high. Noting these dimensions, Elizabeth Block Smith suggested that they emphasized the majesty of God, inducing a sense of awe and permanency to the entire cultic experience. As she says here, According, accordingly, the exaggerated size of the structures in the Solomonic Temple courtyard would suggest that they were not intended for human use, but long belonged to the realm of the divine. Lacking archaeological remains of the bronze molten sea and stands uh, or corroborating evidence of their size, one can only determine by faith whether or not they were cast to the biblical specifications. Superhuman-sized objects likely stood in the courtyard, conveying to ancient Israelites that they served a divine function. Thus, the courtyard objects conveyed Yahweh's enthronement in the royal chapel with the intended empowerment of the king and divine blessings for all of Israel. Noting these, uh, such visual clues to re represent the divine sphere are not unique to Israel, but in, found, in fact found throughout the ancient Near East. One example suffices, the Temple of Vindara found in Syria. This is the temple itself, kind of get a sense of the dimensions here. Here's the, here's the uh, a drawing, right, a representation of it. And what I want you to note are the footsteps that show up both in the portico, uh, leaving the amphitheater, and then the threshold of the main hall. These are to represent the divine, as is demonstrated here, as you can see them in the flagstones themselves. As for their size, again, the super size of the temple, that's what they look like. <laughs>
In another series of texts, color appears to be a fundamental element of the cultic experience. According to Exodus 26 through 8, a number of cultic cloth items, such as the curtain gate of the general tabernacle space, the tabernacle walls, the tabernacle entrance, and the veil separating the holy room from the holy of holies within the tabernacle proper were all imbued with the colors purple, scarlet, and blue. We are not told why these particular colors were selected. Elsewhere, purple cloth is associated with royalty, but this does not necessarily mean one should read the same meaning into the color in these texts. The scarlet color is explicitly used in other ritual processes, the cleansing of the leper and the sacrifice of the red heifer. Two rituals associated with the cleansing or purification. Both rituals also utilize strong aromatics, cedar and hyssop, suggesting that the color red was associated with the strong, hot, and therefore cleansing agents, thus rendering the finished product as purifying. It is also possible that red served as an apotropaic device. Red is found elsewhere as an agent of protection against evil or misfortune. The presence of the color red in the above spaces may have acted in a similar manner, but this is merely a conjecture. The actual meaning is not stated. In any case, it is not the individual colors per se that was important, but the combination of them that indicated the space in question, and in terms of the combination, it is a harmonious one that was both visually striking as well as inviting. Functionally, the color scheme emphasized the purpose of the cloth items as well as the similarity of that purpose among all the items in question. The purpose being that they identified liminalities in the sacred precinct. Liminality, the temporary time and space in which normal social boundaries are laid aside for uncommon communal interaction or transformation, lies at the heart of sacred space, as such space is itself the junction between divine and mortal societies. Yet the space of temples is not uniform, but graded into degrees of sanctity. The color scheme marks the transition of these degrees. Thus, when approaching the tabernacle, the worshiper's eyes would be drawn to the color schematic that made up the entrance. Upon entrance into the courtyard, again the worshiper was confronted with the color scheme, this time drawing the eye to the more holy space of the tabernacle itself, which incorporated the scheme not only in the entrances, but in the wall curtains, suggesting that all the space within the tabernacle proper should be viewed as the same type of space as the entrances, but differentiated by degree. Within the tabernacle, the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies incorporated the color scheme and likewise demarcated the decrees of holy, uh, holy space. Though the color scheme does not appear as frequently in the temple, according to Chronicles, it was again present in the veil of the temple as well, and its usage there highlights the liminal nature of this space just as it did in the tabernacle. In each location, the color scheme differentiated the space while the harmony of the colors both invigorated and invited the individual to proceed further into the sacred space, suggesting that the function of the entire space was to facilitate the interaction between the divine and mortal spheres. The veils and the temple curtain walls were also displayed embroidered cherubim, while the temple had engraved cherubim imagery on the inner wall of the sanctuary thus suggesting these images were fundamental designs for Israel's sacred spaces. Cherubim are found elsewhere in the Old Testament, and their functions within these other texts indicate the purpose behind their visualization in the tabernacle and the temple. The first function was to guard selected space. In Genesis, following the exile of Adam and Eve, cherubim are placed before the tree of life, which itself appears to be in the most easterly portion of the garden. Thus, the presence of the cherubim demarcates the garden into at least two sections the most easterly, which possesses the tree of life, and the rest of the garden. 
Yet the cherubim do not only guard the most sacred space from less sacred space, they stand on the border between the two spaces. In other words, their positioning not only signals the two spaces, but also notes the liminal space that exists between the two spaces, which in turn highlighted the ability for one to traverse the space and interact with others in the conjoining spheres. Not only did the presence of the cherubim denote liminal space, they also represented at least one of the functions of such space, the facilitation of movement from one state to another. Because of their divine origin, the cherubim symbolized God's ability to move between states. 1 Samuel 4, 4 is the first reference to speak of God as sitting between the winged cherubim, a state then repeated a number of times in the Old Testament, culminating in the writings of Ezekiel, where the cherubim are depicted not only as beings that surround God, but bear him from place to place. It goes without saying that these images were meant to be seen, so even though there is no sense that any active ritual activity was associated with them, their visual presence in the ritual environment indicates a critical function. Their association with the color scheme, while at the same time distinct from the, uh, from the general color scheme, would have directed the eye and therefore intention inward, while the actual functions of the cherubim would have highlighted the mobility of God and the ability of the worshiper to interact again with that divine realm. The color scheme was also integral to the overall priestly attire. In Exodus 28, the priestly costume of the ephod, the girdle or belt, and the breast covering all incorporated the color scheme. While the robe was to be all in blue, the pomegranates that hung from the hem incorporated the scheme as well. Thus, the main costume contained the color scheme, thereby associating the priest with the same attributes as the space demarcated with the same colors. Again, the colorful clothing would have drawn the eye and directed one's attention to the priests. Significantly, there appears to have been interaction between the priests' movements and the cultic locations incorporating the color schemes, suggesting that the priests, too, represented the liminal state, highlighting his role as one who could facilitate the interaction between the divine and mortal realms. Thus, the eye was drawn not only to the entrances and the more sacred territory each entrance highlighted, but also to the dynamic figure who traversed this space, bringing the divine to the given worshiper. Regarding the priestly clothing, we are told explicitly in Exodus 28 that the priestly clothing are to be made for kavod and tiferet. Though both terms may reflect abstract concepts such as honor, they can and are also used to describe concrete physical phenomena. For instance, the latter of these terms, tifra, derived from the root pa'ar, which carries the meaning to adorn, is used to describe the quality of types of ornamentation, such as precious stones worn as jewelry, or items such as crowns. In Isaiah 28, verse 5, the Lord himself is a crown of tiferet that is to be worn. While in Isaiah 62, verse 3, it is Israel that will be a crown of tiferet for the Lord. The association of Tiferah with actual ornamentation is seen in Isaiah 3, verse 18, where the Lord warns that he will take the Tiferah from the ornamentation of Jerusalem's women. Ezekiel, in his extended metaphor of Israel as God's bride, describes the quality of her clothing and ornamentation by using the term Tiferah. Associating the term directly with the temple, we are told in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 6, that Solomon garnished the temple with precious stones for Tiferah. With these references in mind, it appears that the tifura of an object referred to is the brilliance or luminosity of the object, and thus of the high quality of the object. This association is clear in Isaiah 60, where the reader is told that someday the sun and moon will no longer provide light, but that, quote, Yahweh will be an internal light to you, your God will be your tifura. 
earlier in verse 7, the temple is the place of God's tifra, suggesting a relationship between the tangible cloud of light that characterized the presence of God. What is clear that is at least on some level, ancient Israel understood tifra to be something that could be physically experienced visually and was to be associated with the cult and those who practiced therein. Like Tiferet, Kavod, the other tomb used in Exodus 28 to describe the function of the priestly clothing, appears to reflect an actual physical visual. Though the basic meaning of the root to be heavy or solid, thus abstractly used to denote strength, it is often used to describe the physical, tangible presence of light denoting the presence of God that was seen by Israel. In Exodus 16.10, God's kavod is seen by all as it leads the community through the wilderness. In 24.17, the Lord explicitly promises that the kavod will be seen by all when he descends to Sinai, literally, to all the eyes of the people. The kavod is described as filling the tabernacle during its dedication and is seen by the entire community. And then again at the temple dedication described in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 7. In light of the above, Rolf Rendorf described the kavod as that aspect of the activity of Yahweh that could be perceived by men and in which he himself is revealed in his power. And its presence in cultic descriptions suggests that witnessing or experiencing the kavod was a desired element of the entire cultic procedure. Von Rod suggested as much when he stated that Moses' encounter with God's kavod in Exodus 33:18 was a cultic ideology that associates God's dwelling in his house with the experience of a theophany. Such an experience may lie behind the imagery presented in Psalm 63, verse 2, for in the sanctuary, Kodesh, I have envisioned you, seeing your power and kavod. Similarly, the cultic experience described in Psalm, in Psalm 26, which includes washing, procession around the sacred precinct, and the vocalization of praise, sums up the worshiper's emotions of the experience and his individual encounter with God in the following manner. Yahweh, I have loved the house you inhabit and the place where your kavod dwells. Though the sanctuary is not mentioned explicitly in Isaiah 33:14, the same imagery is present. Here, the reader is told that the sinner is frightened, for who among us shall sojourn with the fire that devours? Who among us shall abide with eternal burnings? He that walks in righteousness and speaks honestly. He that despises profit from oppressions, that refuses his hand from holding bribes, that stops his ears from plans of murder, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. These characteristics are similar to those found in Psalm 15, which qualify one to abide in the tabernacle or Yahweh's holy hill or holy mountain. The qualifications being he who walks perfectly and works righteousness and speaks the truth of his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does wrong to his neighbor, who condemns in his eyes the one who despises, but he honors them that fears the Lord, who keeps oaths that hurt himself and does not change his intent, he that does not lend, lend with usury nor take advantage against the innocent. In both, the qualifications as to who could, or perhaps more correctly, who should worship are outlined. The similarity of moral and ethical qualifications suggests that the initial questions, who can abide in the holy precinct and who can sojourn with the fire that devours, may be rightly viewed as the same. This in turn suggests, as von Rod intimated, witnessing the kavod of God at the temple not only reminded one of the experience at Sinai, but was an integral part of the entire cultic experience. The association of Tiferet and Kavod with light or the reflection of light may explain their use in Exodus 28. 
Along with the color scheme, gold filament appears to have been utilized in the priestly clothing as well. Van Damme has suggested that gold may have been the primary element by virtue of it being mentioned first. Whether or not this is the case, the incorporation of gold in the weave, either as thread or metal filament, would have lent a sheen or shimmer to the clothing overall, not to mention added heft, without distracting from the overall color scheme and the visual cues inherent within. One can imagine a scene in which one looked on the shimmering robes of the priest as one viewed the majestic, awe-inspiring temple. The sheen on the priestly clothing, coupled with the striking color scheme, may have seemed otherworldly, a place in which the mundane merged with the divine, which of course the temple was understood to be. Significantly, it appears that the priestly clothing may also have reflected ancient Israel's understanding of God's own clothing. In Psalm 104, God is described as clothed with hod and chadar, and who covers himself with light as a garment. Similarly, in Job 40, verse 10, Job is told to clothe himself in the self-same hod and chadar. Like Tifra and Kavod, these terms represent both abstract concepts as well as actual physical properties. Like Tifra, hadar is associated with adornment both in costume and jewelry. And both hadar and hod can be used to describe a glittering object as reflected in the parallelism of Psalm 104. All three items, Tifra, Hod, and Hadar, appear in Psalm 96 as four components or characteristics present, present in the cultic environment. Hod and Hadar are before him, Uz and Tifra are in his sanctuary, and may represent the divine presence as well as the actual physical accoutrements of the sacred precinct. This description in Psalm 96 of the cultic atmosphere or environment is then followed by a series of instructions concerning the actual worship praxis. In verse 7, the congregants, literally families of people, which may suggest cultic pilgrimages centered on familial ties, are told to give to God kavod and uz, while in verse 8, the same are told to give kavod to his name, bring an offering, and enter into the sacred precincts. While the giving of kavod is most likely parallel to the offering of praise, and therefore the entire ritual practice of 96, paralleling similar descriptions throughout the Psalms, communal participation, offering of sacrifice, entering or circumambulating the sacred precinct, uttering of praise in instrument or voice. It is possible that it may refer to a rite found throughout the ancient world, clothing of deity statuary. Jeremiah 10, verse 4 and 9, warns against this very practice while describing the rite itself in which a post was covered or adorned with silver or gold and perhaps draped with blue or purple cloth. Yet similar ritual objects may have once been sanctioned at one point in Israel's cultic experience. Though destroyed during the Hezekiah reforms, the bronze serpent made during the conquest was apparently allowed through the pre-exilic period up until the Assyrian conquest. The fact that it was made of bronze suggests that it would have been the same light-reflecting properties as the other cultic items mentioned above and would have represented God's might and power similar to his name. Its destruction in the days of Hezekiah suggests that it had been an item worshipped, similar to items found, idols found elsewhere, but the fact that it remained as part of the cult for centuries prior is suggestive. If Jeremiah's rebuke reflects general practice, then it is possible that the post was also clothed, integrating light and color as found in the normative cultic practices dealing with the clothing. Certainly, it demonstrates the role of visual cues in the cultic experience. Regardless of the exact ritual meaning of giving kavod, the entire ritual praxis is summarized in the exhortation that the worshiper bow before Yahweh in the Hadrat Kodesh, or the holy apparel. The same clause is employed in Psalm 29, verse 2, as well as 1 Chronicles 16:29, which parallels Psalm 96 and describes the ritual praxis engaged by Israel as they brought the ark and other cultic items to Jerusalem. 
It is also found in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 4, which describes a ritual praxis prior to going to battle. And finally, in Psalm 110, verse 3, where again, it is found in a martial setting. In at least three of these passages, the term is associated with martial scenes. In 1 Chronicles 16, it is the triumphal march of David before the ark as he brings it to Jerusalem that we find the performance of a hymnal text apparently repeated in Psalm 96. In the narrative of the ark's entrance to Jerusalem, 1 Chronicles 16 records the hymn written by David for the occasion in which the worshiper is told to worship the Lord, the Hadrat Kodesh, Though the occasion does not follow an actual military conflict, the entire processional is similar in form to ritual praxis following a military victory, including sacrifice, dancing, and singing, suggesting that it represented the triumphal entrance of the deity. In 2 Chronicles 20, it includes the military ritual praxis for Jehoshaphat's battle against the Moabites and the Ammonites. According to the narrative, the king and all the people went to the courts of the temple, where the king cried aloud, apparently on behalf of the entire congregation, to God. A prophet priest declared that God promised victory <clears throat> as he himself would fight on Israel's behalf, whereupon the entire congregation fell down, <coughs> prostrating themselves while the priests sang. The next morning, Jehoshaphat appointed singers to sing of the Hadre Kodesh while going in front of the rest of the host. Coinciding with the singing, God laid ambush to the foreigners and completely annihilated them. Finally, in Psalm 110, verses 2 and 3, the clause is found following a divine promise of explicit martial support, as well as the promise that the king's own people will support his military, the Hadre Kodesh. In all three instances, the association of the Hadrat Kodesh, or the sacred clothing, with military might may reflect the importance of wearing sacral clothing when going to battle, perhaps to distinguish oneself from the enemy or represent the alliance with the divine. And I should say at this point, uh, Matthew Gray has done some archaeological work in a synagogue in Galilee, and this is bearing out in a martial battle scene where they've seen that the, uh, the Jews are wearing sacred clothing as opposed to the others who are wearing armor. As noted earlier, the presence of God may be a destructive experience or a transforming one based on the worthiness of the individual. In this case, it is possible that the singing of the hymns about God's overwhelming divine attire or the dressing in such attire acted as protection against the destructive divine power. The Moabites, on the other hand, were utterly destroyed so that none of them escaped. Yet the clause appears to become part of the general experience, cultic experience as well. Though Psalm 96 is almost word for word with David's hymn in 1 Chronicles 16, the historical stanzas that make up the first half of David's hymn are missing from 96 as well as the overall historical context. Instead, by focusing on the latter half of the hymn, Psalm 96 highlights the cultic worship in the Hadrat Kodesh, or sacred clothing. It is possible, of course, that the narratives of 1 Chronicles 16 and 2 Chronicles 20 are later expansions. Either way, the phrase, whether in context of cultic or military praxis, reflects a visual theophantic experience. One of the questions among all five references is whether the preposition b should be read as a genitive or a possessive. If the former, then the text implies that there was a certain standard of dress and apparel for the common worshiper as well as the priest. Though the biblical text is silent on what that apparel would be, the social function of clothing as a designation of social standing and identity would have been one expressed within the cult, particularly since the cult facilitated the interaction of the divine and mortal communities. In Exodus 19, as part of the ritual preparation to the theophany described in verse 13, Israel was told to wash their cloaks. Therefore, at least on some level, proper attire appears to have been a component of the private cultic experience. On the other hand, it is possible that the clause in question is a possessive, in which case one was to worship God who was dressed in the Hadrat Kodesh. 
Such a reading would suggest that a dressed deity was envisioned by those who worshipped at the temple and implies that a theophany in which this deity was seen was the end goal of the cultic experience, paralleling Moses' experience in Exodus 33 and an Isaiah's theophany in Isaiah 6, who saw God in the temple clothed in his robes, which filled the sacred space. These physical encounters and their cultic environments suggest the worshippers' desire to, quote, seek the face of God, found in Psalm 24 and 29, may be understood in a more literal manner than previously recognized. In any case, the visual nature of these references again speaks to the role of the visual in the overall cultic experience. But this leads back to the original suggestion of this paper, that the experience was also an aesthetic one. Certainly, the potential theophany was sublime, transformative, and apparently, as the above demonstrates, a desired experience by the Israelite worshiper, the culmination of their ritual praxis. But this does not guarantee that the experience was necessarily a pleasing one. Recognition that the visual experience of God's divine clothing was an aesthetically pleasing one, and one that lay at the heart of the cultic experiences, is suggested, though, in Psalm 27. The psalm locates the worshiper in the tabernacle singing praises and offering sacrifices of joy. The scene, therefore, is a pleasant one in which the offering of sacrifice is a joyful event and sets the tenor of the overall experience by emphasizing the emotional component of the ritual praxis. The intent of the worship is described earlier in verse 4. I have desired one thing of the Lord, one thing I seek for, that I might abide in the house of God all the days of my life in order to see Lachazot, the Naom of Yahweh. Found only seven times in the Hebrew Bible, Naom denotes something that is pleasant or enjoyable, while other variations of the root Naom carry similar connotations, a sweet flavor, a good plentiful geography, and, when used to discuss, discuss people, an attractive form. More importantly, Naam, in all of its variants, refers almost exclusively to aesthetic sensibilities. Thus, its usage here suggests that the worshiper's experience was not just one with the majesty or overwhelming nature of God's Hadar, but one that was attractive, desirable, and even pleasant. And yet, it was a theophanic one. The use of the verb chazah, more the associated often with prophetic revelatory visualizations, rather than the more common verb ra'ah, highlights the theophanic nature of the experience. Thus, in verse 4, is a synthesis of the theophanic and aesthetics of Israel's occultic praxis. Thus, from the color scheme of the entranceways, to the embroidered cherubim, to the glorious clothing of both priests and God, to the Naom of God, aesthetic visualization appears to have been not just a byproduct of cultural praxis, occultic praxis, but a fundamental integral component of the very purposes behind the praxis overall. Thank you. Professor Anderson, please come up here. Uh, perhaps there is time for one question, maybe two. If you're fast, Dan, please stand up here. Yes. In, in your opinion, why is the different uh, less colorful than the today? Uh, today, I would make the case that it is the same. In those two terms, more of what's being described there is the intensity or the brilliance of the light. Thus, in terms of the, the priest clothing, it gets associated with the gold, not so much the purple, the red, and the scarlet, but the gold, the reflective properties. In this case, I think you do have those properties still in the temple, in that we tend to emphasize the colored light, which isn't so much just the whiteness, but the brilliance of the light as well. And in fact, while they manipulated color schemes and scent in a way that we don't, we manipulate light and darkness in a way that they didn't necessarily like. 
And in those cases, we manipulate the degree and the intensity and brilliance of that light, which is exactly what Odin and Badar One more question, uh, Professor Belknap, right over here. Would you want to speak in? Where? Dan, speak right here. Oh, yes. Um, yes, a good question. So, Josephus briefly discusses kind of the veil and these colors and their symbolic qualities, but he also goes into kind of the astronomical phenomena that occurs at the veil, off the high priest vestments and whatnot. In that, in and of itself, did you find anything in your research with the role of kind of uh, solar phenomena in aesthetics? In terms of of that, I'll I'll make the answer somewhat brief in this case. When it comes to later intertestamental or New Testament or even rabbinic material, I didn't go into that in the paper. I want to stay true to the biblical text. Sometimes we overlap and therefore say, well, Josephus talked about it, therefore that must also have been the case uh, in the Old Testament, maybe even the Iron Age when all this practice is being done. And I'm not so sure that we can do that or that we should do it as often as sometimes that we do. So in that case, clearly by the intertestamental period down into the uh, New Testament and rabbinic period, they're beginning to see much more cosmological, explicit cosmological symbolism in terms of these things. Unfortunately, the biblical text really isn't clear. So for instance, I mentioned there is the association of the color purple with royalty and red with these apotropaic or purifying rituals. Interestingly enough, the color blue just isn't even described as to what it means in the Hebrew Bible. So we don't know what the colors mean, and therefore sometimes reading into it with the intertestamental literature, I'm a bit leery. Now, in terms of the the reflective quality, uh, certainly individuals have talked about it. Mark Smith has talked about it in terms of solar imagery from the uh, Bronze and Iron Age uh, cultures that surround Israel as well. So in terms of the concept of brilliance in the sacred architecture of the sacred precinct, I think that is clear. Thank you. Thank you.